Section 9 of Four American Indians by Edson L. Whitney and Francis M. Perry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapters 5 and 6 of The Story of Pontiac. Chapter 5 The Plot. The time was ripe for rebellion, and Pontiac was ready. All over the land should council fires be lighted. All over the land should the hatchet be raised. By wile and treachery the forts should fall. By fire and bloodshed the settlements should be laid waste, and the Englishmen driven into the sea. Thus spoke Pontiac, and thus spoke his messengers, who with war belts of black and red wampum and hatchets smeared with blood, sought out the villages of the Algonquins. Far and wide this dark company went its ways through the forests, across prairies, in spite of storm or flooded stream, or mountain barrier. No camp was so secret, no village so remote, that the messengers of war did not find it out. Wherever they went the bloody plan found favor. The tokens of war were accepted, and pledges of warlike purpose sent to Pontiac. Not far from the summering place where clustered the lodges of Pontiac and his kinsmen rose the walls of Fort Detroit. There Pontiac had suffered humiliation at the hands of the English, and upon it he planned to visit his vengeance. The little French military station planted on the west bank of the Detroit River had reached half a century's growth. It had become a place of some importance. Both banks of the river were studded with farmhouses for miles above and below the fort, as the walled village where the soldiers lived was called. The fort consisted of about one hundred small houses surrounded by a palisade, or wall of heavy stakes, twenty feet high. Since gates are easily broken down, over every gate a blockhouse had been built, from which soldiers could fire upon the approaching enemy. At the four corners of the palisade were bastions, or fortified projections, from which the inmates could see the whole length of the wall and shoot any one attempting to climb it, set fire to it, or do it any harm. The small log houses within were crowded together with only narrow passageways between. They were roofed with bark or thatched with straw. To lessen the danger of fire, a wide road was left between the wall and the houses, Besides dwelling-houses, there were in the fort the barracks where the soldiers stayed, the church, shops, and the council-house, where meetings with the Indians were held. At this time the garrison consisted of about one hundred and twenty men, but counting the other inmates of the fort and the Canadians who lived along the river, there were about two thousand five hundred white people in the Detroit settlement. On the outskirt of the settlement hung the Indian villages, much as the Indian villages crowd around the white settlements of Alaska today. In the midst of the wilderness, this little band of English lived, protected by their log walls. No friends were near. Their nearest neighbors were the conquered French, who regarded them with jealousy and dislike. Not far away were their Indian enemies, yet they thought little of danger. Occasionally, some story of Indian treachery, some rumor of Indian hostility, or some omen of evil filled the garrison with vague alarm. In October 1762, dense clouds gathered over the fort, and soon rain, black as ink, fell from them. This strange occurrence stirred up the fears of the settlers. Some said that it was a sign that the end of the world was at hand. 
others that it was a sign of war. But by the spring of the next year the settlers of Detroit had ceased to think of the black rain and war. If a few had suffered unrest because of the Indians, their fears were put to flight by a visit which Pontiac made to Detroit late in April. With forty of his chiefs he came to the fort, asking to be allowed to perform the peace dance before the commander. The request was granted, and a good-natured crowd gathered near Major Gladwin's house to see the Indian dance. No one thought anything of the fact that ten of the party took no part in the dance, but strolled around the fort prying into everything. Those who noticed them at all thought their conduct showed nothing more than childish curiosity. No one dreamed that these men were spies, and that the sole purpose of the visit was to discover the strength of the garrison. The Indians left with promises to come again to smoke the calumet with the English when all their chiefs should assemble after the winter's hunt. After visiting Detroit, Pontiac sent swift-footed runners to all the tribes in the neighboring country, calling the chiefs to a council to be held in the village of the Potawatomis. When the day for the great council arrived, all the women were sent away from the village so that they could not overhear the plans of the chiefs. At the door of the great bark lodge where the chiefs met, sentinels were posted to prevent interruption. When all had taken their places in the council room, Pontiac rose and laid before his trusted chiefs his crafty plans. On the 7th of May the young warriors should gather on the green near Detroit to play ball, while the older men lay on the ground looking on or loitered in and about the fort. The squaws would go about in the streets with guns and tomahawks hidden under their blankets, offering mats and baskets for sale or begging. Later Pontiac, with the principal chiefs, would arrive, and ask to hold a council with the commander and his officers. While speaking in the council, he would suddenly turn the wampum belt that he held in his hand. At that signal the chiefs should throw off the blankets that hid their weapons and war-paint, and butcher the English before they could offer resistance. When the Indians outside heard the clamor within the council house, they should snatch the guns and knives that the squaws carried, fall upon the surprised and half-armed soldiers, kill them, and plunder and burn the fort, sparing only the French. From the Indians' point of view, this seemed a brave plot. No one objected to the treachery. All the guttural sounds that broke from the throng of listeners were made for approval and applause. Chapter 6 The Seventh of May The Indians kept their secret well. A Canadian saw some Indians filing off their guns to make them short enough to hide under their blankets. But if his suspicions were aroused, he held his peace and said no word of warning to the English. The appointed 7th of May was at hand, and no alarm had been taken at the garrison. But on the evening of the 6th, Major Gladwin talked long in secret with his officers, then ordered half the garrison under arms. He doubled the guard and himself went from place to place to see that every man was at his post. The soldiers did not know the reason for this unusual watchfulness, but they understood that it meant danger. It is said that in the afternoon, an Indian girl who was deeply attached to the English major had brought him a pair of moccasins she had been embroidering for him. She lingered at the fort and seemed unwilling to leave. 
At last she begged Gladwin to go away from the fort for a day or two. Her conduct and request excited suspicion. The major questioned her closely and discovered Pontiac's plot. Be that as it may, on the night of the sixth, Major Gladwin was on the alert. Nothing disturbed the peace of the mild May night. In the morning one watchman on the wall said to another, See, yonder they come. The man addressed looked up the stream and saw many birch canoes rapidly approaching the fort. A perfect fleet, he exclaimed. Yes, plenty of boats, but not many Indians, only two or three in each canoe, replied the first. That's true, but see how deep the canoes are in the water, and what heavy paddling those fellows are doing? A dozen beaver skins to one, every canoe's got a load of those red rascals stretched on their backs well out of sight. You may be right, said the other, shaking his head. It looks as if there might be some ugly work before us. They say the Major has ordered the whole garrison under arms. Even the shops are closed, and the traders armed to the teeth. Most of the Indians who came in the boats went to a green near the fort and began a game of ball. Soon Pontiac himself was seen approaching along the river road at the head of sixty of his chiefs. They wore blankets and marched in single file without a word. When they reached the gate, Pontiac, with his accustomed dignity, asked that he and his chiefs might meet their English brothers in council to discuss important questions. In answer to his request, the gate swung open. Lines of armed soldiers appeared on either side. The Indians, trained to read signs, knew at once that their plot was discovered. Perhaps they felt that the treachery they had planned would be visited upon their own heads. But if they feared, they gave no token. They said no word. They walked undaunted through the narrow streets, meeting armed soldiers at every turn. At the council house they found Major Gladwin, his assistant Captain Campbell, and other officers already assembled and waiting for them. If any Indian had doubted the discovery of their plot, he was certain of it when he saw that the officers wore swords at their sides and pistols in their belts. It was with some reluctance that they seated themselves on the mats arranged for them. This was a trying moment for Pontiac. He stood there, discovered, defeated. But he did not quail before the steady gaze of the English. His brow was only more haughty, his face more stern. And why, he asked in a severe, harsh voice, do our brothers meet us today with guns in their hands? You come among us when we were taking our regular military exercise, answered the commander calmly. With fear somewhat soothed, Pontiac began to speak. For many moons the love of our brothers, the English, has seemed to sleep. It is now spring. The sun shines bright and hot. The bears, the oaks, the rivers awake from their sleep. Brothers, it is time for the friendship between us to awake. Our chiefs have come to do their part, to renew their pledges of peace and friendship. Here he made a movement with the belt he held in his hand, as if about to turn it over. Every Indian was ready to spring. Gladwin gave a signal. A clash of arms sounded through the open door. A drum began beating a charge. Within the council room there was a startled, breathless silence. Pontiac's hand was stayed. 
The belt fell back to its first position. The din of arms ceased. Pontiac repeated his promises of friendship and loyalty, and then sat down. Major Gladwin answered briefly, Brothers, the English are not fickle. They do not withdraw their friendship without a cause. As long as the red men are faithful to their promises, they will find the English their steadfast friends. But if the Indians are false, or do any injury to the English, the English will punish them without mercy. The one object of the Indians was now to turn aside the suspicion of the English. After Gladwin's speech, presents were exchanged, and the meeting broke up with a general handshaking. Before leaving, Pontiac promised that he would return in a few days with his squaws and children that they might shake hands with their English brothers. Scoundrels, laughed one officer when the last Indian had left. They were afraid to sit down. They thought they had been caught in their own trap. It's a pity to let them off so easily. No, replied another more seriously. The Major is right. If there is an outbreak, the Indians must take the first step. They depend more on treachery than force for success. Now that their plan is foiled, the whole trouble will probably blow over. The next day this opinion seemed verified by the appearance of Pontiac with three of his chiefs. He brought a peace-pipe and approached the commander with smooth speeches. Evil birds have whistled in your ears, but do not listen to them. We are your friends. We have come to prove it. We will smoke the calumet with you. Pontiac then offered his great peace-pipe. After it had been smoked in all solemnity, he presented it to Captain Campbell as a high mark of friendship. End of section 9